0: The following is a conversation between Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, founder and CEO of Build Change, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City.
1: The world has been walloped with more than its fair share of natural disasters in recent years, many made worse due to climate change. And when you watch on TV the accounts of the devastation, the loss of life, one very important point is often neglected. And that is the substandard housing these people were living in. Housing which frequently has collapsed upon them and their loved ones. This is an urgent issue, a global epidemic that merits far more attention. And we're going to give it some tonight with one of the preeminent leaders in the field. She is Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change. Good evening, Elizabeth, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Good evening, Denver. Nice to be here.
1: Before we launch into our conversation, tell us the mission of Build Change.
2: Build Change's mission is to save lives in earthquakes and windstorms by working with people in emerging nations to build houses and schools that don't collapse in them.
1: A pivotal moment um, for you was the earthquake in Gujarat, India, in 2001. Tell us what you had been doing when this occurred. And then how events unfolded, which led to the founding of Build Change.
2: Yeah, I was in grad school at UC Berkeley studying civil engineering at the time, and that earthquake killed about 20,000 people. Most people died because their unreinforced masonry house collapsed on them. So I thought, this is a man-made problem, so there must be a a woman-made, in this case, solution. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I I had grown up in a small town outside of Chicago. Uh, My dad, for 50 years, worked as a bricklayer. He owned a small business in the construction industry. So my sister and I worked as bricklayers for our summer jobs in high school and college. So I had construction skills, I had engineering skills, and I thought there must be something that I can do to help.
1: Yeah. And when you saw that, it really became a social justice issue for you, didn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Social justice. I I believe fundamentally that everyone has a right to a safe home, regardless of any other factor, income, gender, um, any other issue.
1: Uh, Elizabeth, how much of the housing in the world would be considered substandard?
2: Uh, The World Bank estimates that 3 billion people will be living in substandard housing by 2030. Mm -hmm. So it's a third of the population living in substandard housing.
1: Tell us a little bit more about the founding story. You went over to India. Mm -hmm. uh, And then where did you go from there?
2: Well, I went to India, and India was a great place to learn Mm -hmm. how to approach post-disaster housing reconstruction and how not to. So India had um, very successfully rolled out a homeowner-driven reconstruction program after the earthquake in Gujarat, where the homeowners were given the choice of rebuilding themselves uh, with a cash grant in installments or working with a partner NGO. And those homeowners who decided to rebuild themselves were much more satisfied with the outcome because they could choose choose for themselves the building materials, the architecture, and as long as they follow the standards, they got the cash installments to help them with the process. As opposed to some homeowners that received a house given to them from an NGO, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes that, that NGO made the wrong decision about where the toilet should be located, where the front door should be located. And those homeowners were a lot less satisfied. So it was very clear to me that the homeowners really need to drive the process. They need to make decisions about materials and architecture.
1: Yeah, it makes all the difference when you have mm-hmm. ownership. And, and I, I, I bet that's part of uh, why they want their house to be that much safer. Because they've actually had a hand in building the house.
2: Yeah, the more the homeowners are bought into the process and they uh, they agree with the architecture or the architecture meets their family's needs, the more interested they are in investing more and in making it safe.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here you are in graduate school. You see this earthquake. You go over there and <laughs> you have uh, an idea and some skill, lots of passion and determination. <laughs> but how in the world the little old you <laughs> get this incredible organization started?
2: Uh, the, well, in, in the early days, it's thanks so much to Echoing Green.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: um, an early stage uh, funder of social entrepreneurship organizations and social justice organizations based here in New York.
1: Uh, Cheryl Dorsey's been on the show a couple of times.
2: Yeah, uh, she's amazing. She is and amazing. She and her team took a chance on me. Mm hmm and, you know, just me at that point. <laughs> That's what it is. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really just an idea. So I'll, I'll be eternally grateful to Cheryl for that, um, because that was sort of the boost of confidence that I needed to start the organization. Um, and then the tsunami happened mm-hmm. in the Indian Ocean. Um, I'd started the organization a few months before. We were trying to figure out where should we start our first program. We were going to work in Iran and in India, but then the tsunami happened. And it just made so much more sense to go work in Indonesia, given the high likelihood likelihood of more earthquakes there.
1: Absolutely. And then uh, you hooked up with the Mercy Corps.
2: Yes. And Mercy Corps, again, eternally grateful for their assistance as well. They had started to work on uh, debris clearing and other emergency issues after the tsunami. And about three months after um, the event happened, people started to say, OK, we we're ready for housing. We need housing. But Mercy Corps didn't have that. Um, Mercy Corps reached out to partners like Build Change mm-hmm. to implement um, a homeowner-driven housing program.
1: Mm-hmm. My brother builds houses, and I, on the other hand, is the least handy person in the entire world. So this question is really directed for people uh, like me. What are the most important practices to building a safe home that you don't find in substandard housing?
2: Ah, so we have the build change three C's, Uh which are trying. we're basically trying to make it simple. Mm -hmm. So it is really simple how you build a disaster resilient home. So the first C is configuration. So, build a simple square, symmetric house with not huge openings, no heavy mass above your head, uh-huh. right? Um, so, follow very simple configuration rules. That's the first C. The second C is connections. Everything has to be connected together, especially for a hurricane. The roof has to be tied down to the walls. For an earthquake, all of the walls have to be connected together. So we have to emphasize connections, connections of all those structural elements. Mm-hmm. And the third C is construction quality, so qual- good quality building materials, good quality workmanship, good quality bricklaying, everything that goes into quality of construction. So the three C's, configuration, connections, and construction quality. If you get those right, you're in pretty good shape. Well,
1: there you go. You know, I didn't think I was going to be able to follow that answer, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) How much more expensive is it to build uh, an earthquake or uh, disaster-resistant house compared to one that is not?
2: It's a, it depends on the starting point. So mm-hmm. the, these numbers range between 5 percent, 20, 25 percent, depending on where you're starting.
1: Yeah. You know, in the countries where you operate, are there building codes? And if there are, are those codes ever enforced?
2: Generally, where we operate, there are building codes. But what we find is, yes, you're right, there's a lack of building code enforcement And there's also a lack of simplification and access. So uh, we often find there is a very good, detailed, uh, complex building code for, say, a multi-story commercial building or a hospital. But bringing that down to a house is a difficult thing. So we create very simple resources intended to bridge between a complex building code and the reality of what it takes to build a safe house on the ground. So you fill the gap. We do.
1: Between Zip and, uh, you know, a 50-story building. Exactly. Yeah, yep. That's interesting. How have you found it navigating the ecosystems in these places? Because I would imagine there's tons of ministries and regulations. I mean, how do you get in there and kind of finesse your way through to, to get the work done that you get done?
2: Well, it is about recognizing what those gaps are and working to fill them. Um, we often find that there are, especially if we're working in a rural area, there are no engineers, um, no government engineers working in that area. So if we can supplement that That team or that capacity by hiring some local professionals and deploying them to do construction supervision and quality control. That can help the situation. It could be that the government just doesn't have the budget to get building inspectors out to the field, especially in remote rural areas. We're also improving our use of technology so that we can remote uh, check construction quality. So we're we're about filling those gaps. Mm -hmm. But Ultimately, it's about relationship building. Hmm. So we hire local professionals, and they build relationships with local government, um, and we work together to uh, build better.
1: And do you train these local professionals? And if you do, what's the most effective way to train someone?
2: Yes, we train local professionals if they need it. Engineers, uh, technical high school students, building materials producers, builders themselves, Um and the most effective way of doing that is in a hands-on environment. So if we go in and sort of give a lecture on how to lay bricks, that is not very effective. <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you have to lay bricks. You have to build the building. You have to get your hands dirty. And so our training programs are very hands-on. They're also very competence, competency-based. So if a builder comes in and, and he or she already has a skill, they can just demonstrate it and get certi- certified. They don't have to waste their time going through a training course. And then we can focus on the skills that are still being developed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's really on-the-job on, jo- on the job training.
2: Yes. On-the-job training is the ideal way of training. That's how I learned how to lay bricks. Yes, so, you did yeah. at about
1: six. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but no. close.
2: At age six, I was still picking up the broken bricks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, in the countries where you have operated, and you can tell mm-hmm. us where you have operated, mm-hmm. do you find it to be very distinct and unique to each one of those countries, or are the problems you encounter pretty much similar no matter where you go?
2: Yes, so we currently operate in Indonesia, the Philippines, Nepal, Colombia, Guatemala, little work in Mexico, um, Haiti, Dominica, St. Martin, and we've done a little bit of work in five Pacific Islands, uh, Tonga, Vanuatu, Samoa, Solomon Islands, and Cook Islands. Mm -hmm. So we are dominantly in Asia and Latin America, in the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands. And we find a lot of similarities across every place that we work. Those construction, those design and construction rules, the three C's that I mentioned before, configuration connections and construction quality, they can explain every building success and every building failure around the world. We also find the challenges homeowners face and what motivates a homeowner to build safely are pretty much the same no matter where we work. Homeowners want their families to be safe. They want a functional kitchen, a good toilet. They want the ability to grow and expand. And so we see these motivations regardless of the culture and the location where we're working.
1: And you don't simply uh, focus on building new houses after a disaster, but you're also preparing those existing structures uh, in the case of one. Tell us about retrofitting.
2: Yes. Retrofitting is a very useful tool for strengthening and upgrading existing housing. So there's a huge housing gap across the world, and we're not going to fill it by building new buildings alone. So there's an opportunity to upgrade and strengthen existing buildings in a way that's affordable and safe, and oftentimes enables a homeowner to expand, maybe add a second story.
1: Yeah. Give me an example of what you would do to strengthen an existing structure.
2: Yes. So we are often dealing with unreinforced masonry. So it's common throughout the developing world. And so we have to work with people because to build with this technology because that is what they prefer and that's what's locally available. So unreinforced masonry um, can f- perform very poorly in an earthquake. But what we, need, what we can do is tie all the walls together by putting a ring beam on top of the walls. Mm -hmm. So it's just a reinforced concrete beam around the top of the walls that ties the walls together. So this simple step can make a big difference in the safety of these buildings. We can also do things like plaster the walls on both sides, which also improves the strength. So these simple things, a ring beam and plaster And plaster can go a long way in improving the safety.
1: Yeah. Have you been able to measure the impact of the work that you've done?
2: Well, we've had a few of our neighborhoods tested by subsequent earthquakes and hurricanes. So, yes. And um, our buildings performed well. That's great.
1: (laughs) That is the ultimate test. Yes. You know, you touched on this a moment ago, um, and that is the role of technology. Mm -hmm. Speak a little bit more about that and how your work has changed since you first started And how you use technology now to help it along?
2: Yes, that's a great question. Um, We want to reach scale. So reach as many homeowners, thousands and thousands of thousands of homeowners with solutions for safe housing. And so in order to do that, we need to reduce the time it takes to assess a house, design a house, um, do quality control in the house. So so we've been using technology since day one to facilitate this process. But in the early days, it was um, AutoCAD 2D, which is a drafting software, a handheld GPS unit, mm-hmm. a digital camera, a spreadsheet, and a lot of paperwork and work in the office. And so... More recently, the technology that is available available to us now, um, using AI, using Revit, using Dynamo scripts, using some tools and softwares that are available now. We can reduce the time it takes us to assess a building, to design a building, and to do quality control in the building by applying these technologies. That's
1: fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, you have the people, mm-hmm. you got the trained workers, mm-hmm. and you have the technology. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned a moment ago, the third a stool, uh, the third leg to the stool is financing. So, are there new financial products that have come online that are making it easier for homeowners to get the money to either strengthen their home or to build a new one?
2: Right, so the financing is key is a key component. If people don't have access to financing or their own wealth, then they are most likely not going to build a safe home. So this is a key of the three-legged stool, as you said: yeah. money, technology, and people. So, um, and there's there's two there's two main uh, um, avenues for funding. There are subsidies and there are loans. Um, in many of our locations, uh, there are subsidies available for folks to rebuild a retrofit. This often happens after a disaster. In some cases in Colombia and Guatemala and other locations, subsidies are available for home improvement before the disaster. Mm-hmm. But there are some environments where subsidies are not available. So in the Philippines, for example, um, we have been experimenting with providing a loan, uh, housing finance, to homeowners to improve their houses. And this has proven to be successful at a small scale. And I was skeptical. I, w- I, wasn't, I doubted whether or not people would actually go into debt to do a structural improvement. But it turns out if we bundle structural strengthening mm-hmm. with expansion, it's actually a very attractive product to a homeowner in Manila who recognizes that they live in an environment that's prone to earthquakes and typhoons.
1: Do they get a break on their insurance? If they Hi,
2: insurance. Uh, insurance. If, <laughs> only, if only we could get to the point where these houses are insurable. We have been um, advocating with the insurance industry to mm-hmm. help us to close this protection gap yeah. and to work together to improve the homes so that they are insurable so that the homeowners can have that additional protection protection mm-hmm. but generally most of the homeowners that we work with are outside the insurance market are outside of the insurance market yep. wow. mm-hmm. yeah
1: you also strive to educate the public on safe construction. You have information campaigns and things mm-hmm. of that nature. What, what, are, what are they like?
2: Uh, radio, billboards, right, radio. Um, apps. <laughs> in the old days, when when um, you know SMS became common, we used to text our builders, reminding them to soak their bricks in water that morning and that sort of thing. So we're using every avenue we can to get the information out to the population about safe construction. We have um, mostly we rely on apps now um, to get that information out.
1: Yeah. And when you talk about soaking the bricks in water to strengthen them, that uh, also becomes a finance issue, too, because that builder can't turn that around as quickly as they otherwise might. So you have to sort of have that bridge to allow that individual to do that before it goes to market.
2: Exactly. Yes. And with the right training and the right in- incentives and in- information, it can be done.
1: You're a 501c3. So we are. what are your sources of revenue?
2: Ah, good question. So oftentimes after a disaster, our sources of revenue are other larger NGOs, so American Red Cross. Mercy Corps um, ca- uh, Catholic Relief Services, uh, World Vision, organizations that are um, working in the post-disaster relief space who also want um, are interested in supporting people with uh, housing reconstruction or retrofitting. Uh, we have a few corporate partnerships. We, of course, have individual funders um, and funders from the social entrepreneurship space.
1: Yeah, yeah, And, you know, I've always was amazed at how well you have built partnerships. You've got mm. a lot of partnerships. And we it do. is funny with Mercy Corps and things of that sort, when an organization starts and they forge a partnership, it kind of becomes part of their ethos. Yes. And you have been able to find all different kinds of partnerships, as you say, in the finance space mm-hmm. and things like that. What makes a great partnership?
2: Well, you, you, we have to have partnerships. I mean, it, p- housing is a very complex issue. Yeah. And there's not one organization that can solve the problem. So we need partnerships with NGOs, with finance institutions, with government, with private sector all of them, but what makes a great partnership? I think one of the things that we've that has stood out is is when we're philosophically aligned, mm. when everyone wins, and when there are champions within both organizations that can make things happen.
1: Talk about the corporate culture at Build Change. What do you believe is the most unique aspect of it, and why is it such a special place to work?
2: Ah. Yeah, it is a special place to work. We we just had our 15-year anniversary, and I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed for 15 years if it wasn't a special place. I think we're all driven by impact. We're all driven by the need for safer housing around the world. And we see in homeowners' faces on a day-to-day basis how important this is to them, how scared or traumatized they might be after a disaster, and how important it is to um, work with them to build a safe house so that um, um, they can return to a normal life.
1: Does the media ever come to you after one of these disasters? And I say that in the context that 90,000 people Mm -hmm. died in natural Mm -hmm. disasters last year. And I sort of said in the opening, you know, I see this on TV, but – you know, we just know their bodies underneath the rubble. No mm-hmm. one ever talks about substandard housing. And I just wonder why that isn't more discussed on the networks. I mean, have you found that to be the case?
2: Yes. I was going to ask you that question.
1: <laughs> it's my show. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Yeah,
2: I wonder about that because the media tends to focus on the immediate aftermath of the disaster, which is terrible. And yes. it's, a, it's a humanitarian disaster. And they should focus on that. Well, the unfortunate thing for us is that they there's less attention in the media Sort of three, three, even three months, six months, nine months, twelve months after after a disaster, when housing becomes um, uh, uh, when housing is the critical issue being addressed, and unfortunately, a lot of the media ten- attention is negative. It focuses on people not delivering yeah. housing when there are success stories out there of successful um, delivery of housing programs and
1: uh, positive results. Yeah, I think somebody on the show once called it the CNN moment. And when CNN leaves, then all of a sudden everything is forgotten. But that's when the real work begins. Right. But we just tend our attention span is so so short. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Let me close with this, Elizabeth, and that is this major new initiative you have just announced with the World Bank. What is it and what do you hope it's going to achieve?
2: It's the Global Program for Resilient Housing, and it is intended to improve existing housing around the world, especially in emerging markets. And we hope it drives... Uh, capital toward the problem, as well as technical inputs, technology, and incentives for people to build safely.
1: That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us where people can learn more about this work and also about your 10 and in 10 initiative.
2: Ah, Yes. So you can find out, you can visit our website at buildchange.org. Follow us on Twitter at buildchange. And our 10 and in 10 initiative is to enable 10 million people to live in safer
1: housing in the next 10 years. Oh, that's great. And people can support that, can't they? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Elizabeth. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program.
2: My pleasure as well. Thank you so much. I'll be back
1: with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
0: The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970, The Answer in New York, and on iHeartRadio. Radio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com/slash Business of Giving.